Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Hello everyone, this is Bill. I want to welcome you to this tour portion called Tetzave, which means shall command. Of course, it's related to the word mitzvah, and everybody knows that the mitzvah or the mitzvot are the commandments. Now, this tour portion is taken from Exodus, chapters 27, verse 20, through chapter 30, verse 10. And of course, Exodus in Hebrew is Shemot. Now, in the previous portion, we focused upon the Mishkan and its preparations its furnishings, how it was to be constructed, etc. This Sidra focuses upon the Kohanim, their selection, their garments, their consecration, of course the Kohanim being the priest. Now if the Mishkan was to constantly remind Israel of her call to holiness unto the Lord, then the garments and the unique duties of the priesthood was to be a constant reminder to them of how they were to represent Israel to the Creator and perhaps even more importantly, how they were to represent the Creator to Israel. Consequently, as believers, this is also to remind us of our calling. Of course, Paul writes to us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. And being a temple of the Holy Spirit, we are to live and conduct ourselves in holiness. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a royal priesthood. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And so, as a kingdom of priests, we are called to keep our garments clean. In Revelation 16, verse 15, Yeshua says this, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So again, as we kind of introduce this Torah portion, the focus and the emphasis is on the priests, their selection, their consecration, their garments, etc. Now, in Exodus chapter 27, beginning at verse 20 and 21, the Torah portion, before it actually gets into the priest, discusses the oil. In fact, it says that we uh, that they were to take pure oil, pure olive oil. The Hebrew term for pure is zach, and it means clean or transparent. And so that it was to be transparent indicates that it was to have no foreign substance, no sediment from the olives itself. Thus, this infers that this particular oil came from olives that had been pressed, not necessarily crushed. And it is believed that these olives were gently pressed so that just the first drops of the purest oil was collected. But at any rate, the fuel for the menorah, that that is the oil, was to be pure and that it was to be pure is interpreted to mean that the priesthood was to remain pure, not contaminated by the rest of the nation. In other words, they could not allow unauthorized people to take part in the services and when they went into the temple and the holy place, and of course on Yom Kippur, the most holy place, when the high priest would go in there, they were not to be contaminated by anything that was considered to be unclean. 
So the pure oil is indicative of the priesthood being uncontaminated and remaining pure. So then, according to 1 Peter, if we as believers are considered to be priests, this carries the same weight for us. We are to remain pure and uncontaminated. It would also indicate that we must be willing to be placed in the master's press to allow him to press so that he may obtain the oil. And this also indicates that we must not invite the profane into our midst and defile the call to holiness. Now, as we continue to read about the menorah or the oil, I should say, we see that the light was to be perpetual, that is, forever, continually. The Hebrew term is ner tamid, an eternal light, really. And we see in the Torah portion that Aaron and his sons were to clean the lamps in the morning and replace the wicks then, and then they were to light the lamps at evening. Now, there was no light in the sanctuary, so there always had to be a light that was burning, thus ner tamid, or eternal or continuous light. Now, just kind of a footnote to this, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, in the time of Eli, the high priest, when Samuel was there in the tabernacle, we understand that the lights went out, the lamp of God went out, indicating, I believe anyway, the spiritual condition of Eli and his sons. It was, it was pretty much a lackadaisical attitude toward things. In fact, when Samuel told Eli that God had spoken to him and said that his sons were going to die, etc., Eli's response to that was, uh, well, you know, whatever God says, I guess we'll just have to go with that. So my point is, the, there was always to be a light, but there have been times when the spiritual condition of the priests of God's people has ebbed low and has allowed this light to go out. Now, the lamp is thought, that is the menorah, is thought to be symbolic of Israel, in that Israel is to be a light to the nations. Of course, we can read about this in Isaiah 42, verse 6. And at times, that light has ebbed low, and yet the light has never been totally extinguished. A lamp, if I can put it that way, has continued to burn. There is still an Israel, and by the Israel, I mean more than just the political Israel that everybody thinks about. So in other words, what we're getting at is this. The fact that the menorah was to always have a lamp burning, the ner tamid, that was to be a continual lamp, is speaking to us of the fact that there was always to be a light, that there were times that the light would go out, and typically that one light would be burning only in the daylight hours, which suggests to me that when it's daylight, when everything's warm, when everything's going good, if I can put it that way, that's when the light tends to ebb low. But at any rate, I mean, it was commanded that they light them in the evenings. Don't get me wrong. But perhaps it is also speaking in spiritual terms that even if the light goes out, for the most part, there should always be a lamp continuing to burn. There's always going to be, if we can put it this way, an ember. And so the Ner Tamid leads to the belief, again, that one of the lamps always was kept burning. Now, some say it was the middle lamp. Some say that it was the western lamp, which is kind of interesting. That would be the one situated, if I understand it correctly, all the way to the right if, as you would face the menorah in the holy place. But west is very interesting. Now, this belief would suggest that the Ner Tamid that is, the one lamp that would continue to burn, would also function as the shmash, or the servant lamp. And of course, those of you who were familiar with Hanukkah and the Hanukkiah, that there's nine lamps there. One is the shmash, the servant lamp. 
which is this is the light that serves the other branches to kindle the light in their lamps. And so the idea of this, I believe, comes from the fact that in the menorah, in the holy place, there was one light that was continually burning. And so when it came time to kindle the rest of the lights, the priest would just take the light from that nertamid, which is now becoming a shmash servant, and is now kindling the lights for the, le- for the rest of the branches. And thus the Messiah, Yeshua, who is the light of the world, he's the light of creation. He, number one, has prevented Israel from being extinguished. He is the one that is from the beginning. And interestingly, in the very beginning, on the first day of creation, you have the light, that let there be light. And yet we do not see the sun, which we identify with the light that's in the sky, coming into existence until the fourth day. So what we see here, I believe anyway, is that how the Yeshua, the Messiah, is the light of the world. He's from the very beginning. But he is made flesh and dwells among us as the light of the world about 4,000 years roughly after this happened, or as a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, he prepared a body for him on the fourth day. So at any rate, going back to the menorah, the Messiah is the light of the world And in the sense that there has always been one perpetual light, it is the Messiah who has prevented Israel from being completely extinguished. Because you have to understand the menorah represents Israel. It is the emblem for the state of Israel, actually. And so, as such, Yeshua serves to extend that light to all of the branches, those on the right and those on the left. He becomes the shmash, the servant, and I say left and right, if that nertamid, or if that shmash was the branch in the middle, and for reasons we won't have time to get in here, get into on this teaching, I believe that's accurate. But just to tip my hat to the idea that the Western light may have been the one that kept burning, that would suggest then that in the evening, in Erev, that the light that was in the West would begin to move toward the East, if you're following what I'm saying. Now, In the Torah portion, we see that Moses is singled out to perform three specific tasks. And this is very interesting because these tasks are the preparation of the oil, the selection of the priests, the selection of those who would make the garments and build the Mishkan. And what makes this interesting is that previously, Moses had only conveyed instructions to others, and now he is actively taking part in doing some of these things. Again, the preparation of the oil, selecting the priests, and, well, God tells him who to select, but he actually is the one who goes out and does this, and then the selection of those who would make garments and build the Mishkan. Now, this is interesting because Moses is a picture of Messiah Yeshua. Thus, Yeshua is the one who conveys to Israel what the Father is instructing, like Moses would do. He would speak to the children of Israel and say. But Yeshua is also the one who prepares the oil. If I can put it this way, he's the one who presses the fruit. He knows just how much to press without damaging the fruit, without causing sediment to be broken off and to contaminate the oil. He knows just how to press the the fruit to see that the oil is indeed pure. He's the one who selects those who are to be his priests. Remember he told the the disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. We just read in 1 Peter that we are a 
chosen generation. And so Yeshua is the one who selects those who are to be his priests. Likewise, he selects those in whom he has invested wisdom to build his house. His house being his body. Upon this rock I will build my congregation, and the gates of Sheol shall not prevail against it. So he's the one who does this selecting. It's all falling to him. So we didn't choose him. He chose us. Another thing to consider is that most likely, well, as it relates to the oil now, another thing to consider is that there were probably no olive trees in the wilderness. I mean, this is where the instructions are coming to them. They're out in the middle of the wilderness. I wouldn't imagine there's a lot of olive trees. And so the question is, where did this pure olive oil come from? It is believed that the oil first used had to be prepared in Egypt, and then it was brought to Moses for inspection. So I want to emphasize that prepared in Egypt, prepared in exile. Now, the picture here is that the oil is prepared in exile and then brought to the Messiah in the wilderness for inspection. Now, going back to something we said earlier concerning the Nedetami, the one light that we continue to burn. I believe personally that it was probably the middle branch, and the main reason I believe that is because in Revelation, when John sees Yeshua on the island of Patmos, he says that he was standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, that meaning the middle branch. But now, let's say that the western light was the one that continued to burn. It's the western light that continues to burn. The inference then would be alluding to Joseph. Because Joseph was taken down into Egypt, and he was the light burning in the midst of the darkness, that is Egypt. And then when we get out into the wilderness, we see that the oil was prepared in Egypt, or shall we say, the West. So we get these typologies and these hints at prophetic themes that the oil has to be prepared in Egypt, and then it's brought into the wilderness. I could relate to you how that in the parable of the foolish and the wise virgins, the issue determining which are wise and which are foolish is oil or the lack thereof. And so the ones who had oil were able to make the journey into the wedding chamber. And there's lots of scripture to suggest that the wedding chamber is synonymous with the wilderness. Again, we don't have time to get into that today, but the point is that Joseph is the light burning in the darkness of Egypt. Joseph and what he represents. Egypt is where the oil is prepared. Keep in mind, Joseph was the last to come into the land of Canaan. When Jacob crosses over and he meets Esau, the last was Joseph because the way Jacob arranged his wives and children. Joseph was at the last. In fact, the word is acharon, which is to say the last or at the end. And from the vantage point of the tabernacle, North is not the prominent direction, but east is the prominent direction. And if east is the forward direction, then west is at the end, or west is Acheron. So all of this is hinting for us some other issues that, again, we won't have time to develop here. But we see that not only is the Torah portion given us the particular historical 
narratives of what happened, what God said to do. But all of these things that we read, there are prophetic themes. And in this one, we see perhaps it is alluding to Joseph. It is alluding to the light being in the West. It's about the oil being prepared in Egypt. That's where we are, etc. And how all these things come to fruition at the end of days. Now, in Exodus chapter 28, beginning at verse 1 through verse 5. And by the way, we're not going to read all the verses. We're just going to kind of allude to them and uh, mention and highlight some things. But in verse 1, we see that Aaron and his sons are anointed as priests. And then, from that point on, after they are consecrated, all the sons born to them are automatically priests. However, and, and this is just kind of a footnote, but that would also say that they're, that Aaron's living grandsons would not be necessarily considered priests. In other words, Pinchas was Aaron's grandson. But Pinchas is not named among those who is going to be anointed as priest. Only later on, when we see Pinchas taking a javelin and running through one of the Israelites who had mingled with one of the daughters of Midian, do we see that God elevates him from just being a Levite to being a priest in his own right. But the point is, is that Aaron and his sons are anointed as priests, and from that point forward, all sons born to them will automatically be priests by virtue of being the sons of Aaron. Now, in verse 2, it talks to us about the garments that are going to be prepared for Aaron and his sons. And in Hebrew, it says they, they are bigde kodesh. Bigde kodesh, which literally means holy garments. Here's what I find very interesting about this. The word bigde, garment, means to cover or to present an outer appearance. Of course, that's not hard to figure out considering what garments are. However, the word bigde comes from the word bagad, and bagad means to act covertly or deceitfully or to be faithless. So that's very interesting to me that here we are talking about the garments of the priest, that they are considered to be holy garments, but the word garment is related to the idea of being faithless to act deceitfully. And so here's my question. Might it be that the raw meaning of garment, that is to be faithless, is linked to the fact that Adam had to be clothed to cover his nakedness, which came about as a result of being faithless to the Creator's command? Now, that the priestly garments were for, and I'm quoting, splendor and glory, makes me wonder how Adam was clothed, if I can put it that way, before he sinned. We know that they were naked, but they didn't know it. But my point is, were they clothed with splendor and glory? So, it seems that before the fall, Adam functioned as a priest, and I would say perhaps a high priest of another order. And I say that because he was placed in the garden, and that's where the Creator met with him. And then the garden, by virtue of the Creator being present there, makes it holy, if you will, a holy place. And then Adam is told to work and to guard, literally, that place, the garden. And those who are told to work in the tabernacle, or the holy place, and to guard the holiness of the holy place, are priests. And so for this and many reasons, I believe that Adam was more than likely a priest, perhaps even considered high priest before the fall. Here's what I'm getting at. He, if he was priest and he was clothed with splendor and glory, what happens when he falls? 
Well, now he's naked, he realizes it, and then God has to take and make coats of skin in order to clothe his nakedness. He was faithless, therefore we have garments, digde, being related to the idea of being faithless. Now, it's also interesting to point out that Adam, if he was a priest, it was of another order. It was not of the Levitical priesthood because that didn't come until after the golden calf incident. In other words, the Levitical priesthood was actually plan B because before that, all of Israel was called to be priest. In Exodus 19, verse 6, he says to all of Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, again, what this is telling us is that all Israel was called to be priests. But after the golden calf incident, of course, this is where the Levitical priesthood comes into being. But I also want you to notice and consider that this is probably what Peter was alluding to when he says to the believers, but you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He was echoing, if I can put it this way, Exodus 19, verse 6. So all of this, ladies and gentlemen, takes us back to the concept that we covered in the previous portion, that Israel at large was to be the Mishkan, the tabernacle, where his presence dwelt. And that, hap- that was the purpose before the idolatry of the golden calf. And so consequently, we see that those who come near unto him must be sanctified and they must wear clean garments. They cannot allow, as Adam did, they cannot allow themselves to let their guard down, to allow the serpent into our midst, allow something that is profane into our midst, and then realize that we're naked, as he tells the congregation of Laodicea. They thought they were clothed. As it turns out, they were naked. And so they needed garments. So again, all of this is to say, ladies and gentlemen, that there is an idea when it comes to garments and is related to the priestly garments that the whole idea of covering your body goes back to the idea of Adam being faithless. And so God had to make him coats of skin. Again, inferring at least to me that he may have been clothed with splendor and glory. And that as we bring that over and speak of us as this royal priesthood, this holy nation, anyone in his service is going to have to wear clean garments. We must consider how we approach him, and that must be with pure garments. We must stand clean before him. Now, the ordinary Kohen wore white linen garments. Of course, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, also wore these same simple linen garments. So, the reason we're bringing this out is that it accentuates the need to exchange our garments if they have become dirty. We have to put on clean garments because we are called to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation. And so, if we allow our garments to become dirty, then we have got to put on clean garments. Of course, in Genesis 35, Jacob told his household to put away idols, put away the idolatry, put away the unclean things, if you will, and, quote, change garments. Joseph had to change garments before he appeared before Pharaoh in Genesis 41. And, of course, we read that Yehoshua, the high priest, had to change his garments because he had allowed his garments to become dirty, and that's in Zechariah chapter 3. So, in other words, folks, what we're getting at here is that these garments of the high priest, they speak of 
on one level, they speak of our obligation to stand before God holy, to stand before him with clean garments, to stand before him as it was intended that we do before the fall, clothed in splendor and glory, clothed in righteousness, however you'd like to look at it. So all of that is interesting then, because the garments of the high priest, as we will read in this Torah portion, were spotted with blood in order to sanctify them. In other words, they were not holy garments until they had been sprinkled with blood. And I want to suggest to you that this is perhaps to remind us, again, that Adam shed his garment of splendor for coats of skin. And for him to have those coats of skin meant that animals had to die, and that means that blood had to be spilt. And so blood is connected to the idea of Adam being clothed with these coats of skin because he had shed his garments of splendor. Now, to resume the role relinquished by Adam are these garments of splendor that are made holy when they are sprinkled with blood. And of course, that, as far as I'm concerned, is alluding to the fact that Yeshua, whose blood, who is our high priest, by the way, but it's his blood that allows us access to the Creator. Because we read in Hebrews 9.12 that when his, with his own blood he entered once into the holy place, obtaining eternal redemption. We can also read that when Yeshua comes up from Edom in Isaiah 63, that his glorious apparel is spotted with blood. And then in Revelation 19, verse 13, of course, when he returns, his robe is dipped in blood. And so ultimately then, the robes of the high priest are... While they certainly address issues of the past where Adam is concerned, how they address you and me and how we are to stand before the Creator, ultimately what we're going to see in these robes and in these vestments and all the things that pertain to the high priest are ultimately going to bring us back and focus upon and emphasize Yeshua, our high priest. Now in Exodus 28, verse 5 through 14, the Torah portion deals with the ephod and the memorial stones. And in verse 6, of chapter 28, we see that the ephod was made of the same type material and the same colors as the parochet, that is the veil. Of course, the type materials and colors, well, the the colors specifically, were blue, purple, and scarlet. And as we shared in the previous Torah portion, what that, at least to me, symbolizes is if you take blue, which represents the heavens where God dwells, and you take red, which represents the earth, because it's Edom. It comes from the ground, Adama. And you take the blue, the heavenly, and you fuse it with the red, that is the earthly. The end result is purple, which is, even though you see the blue, even though you see the scarlet, nevertheless, it forms something unique. So we believe that that speaks to us of Yeshua by fusing the red with the blue. But what we wanted to, sh- to note here is that the ephod is made of the same material and it's made from the s- uh, made of the same colors as the veil. And I believe showing the relationship between the one who wears the ephod and the sanctity of the most holy place. Now, the belt is also identical in fabric and color. But in verse 9, here's something very interesting. It says that, upon the shoulders of the high priest on the ephod with the straps that are there, that he is to wear two shoham stones that are engraved with the tribes of Israel. Now, many translations say onyx, but in Hebrew it's shoham. And as a matter of fact, in studying for this, I realized that most lexicons 
do not have any meaning for this word. In fact, most of them say from an unknown meaning or from an unknown root or something of that nature. And so there's an unknown as to what the Shoam stones are. Again, many translations say onyx, and we know what onyx is, but there is reason to believe that onyx might, might not be as accurate as we'd like for it to be. But here's the point. There's an unknown to what these stones really are. Now, one reference says that this word Shom, which is spelled Shin He Mem, speaks of identity or to identify, which is kind of interesting because when it comes to Israel, there is this hidden aspect of Israel's identity. And what I mean by that is that, well, where the world is concerned, Israel is equivalent to being Jewish. And in Judaism, Israel is equivalent to being Jewish. And in mainstream Christianity, Israel is equivalent to being Jewish. But from the scripture's point of view, Israel is not necessarily those who were born of ethnic descent. It's not necessarily those who are the physical descendants of Abraham. It can be. They're certainly not excluded, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee it. Israel is identified as those who walk according to God's instructions. They have a relationship with the Father. They have, according to Galatians 3, those who are in Messiah are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So Israel is much larger and incorporates a lot more than what the world identifies and, in some cases, excludes what the world identifies. Because just because somebody's Jewish ethnically does not make them Israel in God's eyes, and that's a biblical fact. Now, Here's why I got into all this. When it comes to inscribing the 12 tribes on these two Shoham stones, we understand, traditionally anyway, that Joseph is used instead of his two sons. In other words, it doesn't say Ephraim and Manasseh on those two stones. It says Joseph, which means also Levi would be inscribed on one of those stones. And, of course, Joseph is the one of the 12 tribes who was hidden in the West, in Egypt. He was the light in the midst of the darkness in Egypt, etc., and so Joseph is on one of those stones, but Joseph has been hidden. He was hidden from his brethren. When they come to him in the courtroom there during the famine, they don't recognize him. He's hidden from them in that respect. So there is a hidden aspect of Israel's identity, and it's tied closely to the whole issue of Joseph. Now, these two stones upon the shoulders of the high priest were one stone had six tribes inscribed or engraved on it, and the other stone had six tribes engraved on it, much like the table of showbread, remember, which the bread, the twelve loaves, were arranged in two rows of six, and those twelve loaves represent the twelve tribes of Israel. However, Maimonides couldn't assign no real meaning or understanding to the command of the showbread, other than these twelve loaves representing the twelve tribes. So what I'm getting at is this hidden aspect of Israel's identity. Now, consider the two stones that were engraved with the words of the law that were placed in the ark. Of course, the two tablets, the two testimonial tablets, engraved with the words of the law housed in the ark of the covenant, which was essentially God's throne on earth. Consider also that when Israel entered the land of Canaan, they were to set up stones upon Mount Ebal and then they were to write or engrave the words of the law on them. In fact, the Bible tells us that six tribes were to stand on Mount Gerizim and bless. 
Those six tribes are Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Yosef, and Benjamin. And then six tribes were to stand over toward Ebal, and they were to represent the cursings. And those tribes were Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. My point is this. The relationship between the twelve tribes of Israel and the commandments given to Israel. You cannot separate the commands, the Torah, the instructions of the Creator from the tribes of Israel because Israel, once again, is not determined exclusively by genealogy, but it's determined by those who are in relationship with the God of Israel and because they are in relationship with the God of Israel, they keep His commands to Israel. In other words, the twelve tribes have respect for what is engraved on those two stones. Now, in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so, in other words, what the Creator is giving us here is that after coming out of Egypt, being redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, having passed through the sea, saw their enemies destroyed before their very eyes, now he says, after all of that, if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, do what I say to do, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Then that's how everybody will know that you belong to me. And you'll be a kingdom of priests and you'll be a holy nation. So again, emphasizing that Israel has a relationship with those words that were engraved on those two stones that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The tribes of Israel have relationship with those two stones that he had them inscribe the words of the law on Mount Ebal. So the high priest then is bearing upon his shoulders two stones that have been engraved likewise but in this case with the names of the tribes of Israel. And then that means that as the high priest ministers unto the Creator, he bears the tribes on his shoulders before the Creator. In other words, he is the messenger and the representative of the entire community. He is bearing representation, if you will, of the entire community, the twelve tribes, which constitutes the kingdom of Israel, upon his shoulders, which brings this scripture to mind in light of the fact that Yeshua is our high priest in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now what's interesting here is that the word government in Isaiah 9, 6 is Misra. Misra, spelled Mem Shin And it comes from the root word Shin Sarah. Sarah, which is actually where we get Sarah from. But Sarah, the verb means to have power, to persevere, to prevail. So the concept of persevering, prevailing, to have power, gives us the Hebrew word Misra, which is translated in Isaiah 9.6 as government. And this is what he is going to bear Upon his shoulder. In the places where this word Sarah is used, it speaks of when Jacob struggled with the angel who gave him the name Israel, specifically in Genesis 32 28. In other words, every time you see this word Sarah, 
It's used in relation to Jacob and his struggle with the angel and where he gets his name Yisrael. In fact, this Sarah is one of the root words that forms the name Yisrael. El being the other. Yisrael. So, in other words, ladies and gentlemen, the government that he bears upon his shoulders, that is going to be upon his shoulders, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, this government, this kingdom, this empire, if we can put it that way, is comprised of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, what we see in the high priest bearing the two stones engraved with the twelve tribes of Israel upon his shoulders, we see a picture of our heavenly high priest bearing the government, bearing the kingdom, that is the twelve tribes, as a constant reminder before the God of the whole earth, bearing the government upon his shoulders. Now, just to kind of underscore this, there's another interesting point that comes to mind, and this is kind of going off on one of those little rabbi trails that we talk about. When Jacob fled from Esau, he went to a place that was called Luz. And of course, that's where he saw the staircase with the angels ascending and descending on it. But before he had the vision, it says that he took one of the stones of that place and he set it at his head. That's in Genesis 28:11. Now we, most of us anyway, grew up thinking he set it under his head and used it as a pillow. And that's thanks to the King James. But in reality, what it says is that he set it at his head. Now I have a reason for believing that that's exactly what it was. and But what I wanted to get to here is that in Hebrew what it says is that he literally set it at his heads, plural. So what does that mean? If he set one of the stones of that place at his heads, knowing that he only has one, what is it hinting at? And, of course, I believe what it's saying to us is that he set this stone at the heads, that is to say, the 12 tribes that would come from him. The 12 tribes are the 12 heads. And so then, he sets up the stone after the vision. He anoints it, and he calls it Bethel, where later on down through the years, the high priest would minister because this place he called Bethel that was previously called Luz is what we now call the Temple Mount where Solomon erected the temple where the high priest ministered unto the God of Israel. So now, here's what he does. He sets up this stone that he has set at his head or prophetically speaking, his heads. And I believe that was to protect his head because he's fleeing from Esau, the one who at birth had his heel poised to crush his head. So he sets this stone that has protected his head, and he sets it up and anoints it as a pillar in the place that would later become the Temple Mount and calls it Bethel, or house of God. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is this. The Messiah, who is our heavenly high priest, the one who bears Israel upon his shoulders before the Father. I believe that stone that Jacob set at his head or heads represents the Mashiach who watches over the heads of Israel. He watches over the tribes of Israel. He is bearing the tribes of Israel ever before the Father. Now, another thing to consider is in the word Sarah or Misra, translated government in Isaiah 9.6, the root being Sarah, which means to have power, to persevere, to prevail, that prevailing, persevering, is such an integral part of Yisrael, 
Israel, because that's where the word comes from, I want you to consider some of the words that Yeshua gives to Philadelphia there in Revelation chapter 3. Verse 10, he tells them that they have kept his command to persevere, thus he will guard them, that is, to keep them safe. That's in verse 10. And then in verse 12, he tells them that those that prevail, he will make pillars in the house of God, which in Hebrew is Bethel, the name that Jacob gave the place when he set up the stone that had protected his head, or guarded his head, and he anointed it and made it a pillar. In verse 12, Yeshua also tells the congregation of Philadelphia that he will write on them the name of God, the city of God, and my new name. And the Greek word that is translated write originally meant to carve or to engrave. In fact, in the Septuagint, this same Greek word is used when the words of the law were engraved on the two tablets and when Israel was to engrave the words of the law on those two stones at Mount Ebal. Of course, we can read in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, that of Israel, God says he will put his law in their minds and he will engrave it on their heart. All right, so what am I getting at here? What is the point? The high priest, Messiah Yeshua, bears the 12 tribes before God as a memorial, indicating that God is always being reminded, not that he needs to be reminded, but Ever before him is this memorial, this reminder of the promise concerning the 12 tribes. In that he says he is going to restore them. He's going to bring them back and put them back together as he intended for them to be. And so when Israel through the ages has cried out, as we read in Isaiah, that God has forgotten them, here's what he replies to them in Isaiah 49 verse 16. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your walls, I point out, stone walls, are continually before me. And so, continually before the Creator, the God of Israel, are these stones. Engraved upon them are the twelve tribes of Israel, and the heavenly high priest continually bears this before the Father to bring it up as a remembrance. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the day is going to come when he reunites them, when he restores all things, that he is going to write his name, which is synonymous with his authority, which is his word. He's going to write that, shall we say, engrave it upon their hearts. Now, in Exodus 28, verse 15 through 30, the Torah portion describes for us the breastplate and the urim and tumim. In verse 15, the Hebrew phrase for breastplate of judgment is choshen mishpat. Choshen mishpat. Now, the first thing we want to acknowledge is that judgment doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It just depends on what side of the law you're on. You can, If you're on the right side of the law and judgment is passed, you're going to be blameless. If you're on the wrong side of the law and judgment is passed, you're going to be guilty. In fact, that's why I believe in part Yeshua says it rains on the just and the unjust. So judgment is not necessarily a bad thing. Judgment sometimes is a vindicating thing. But like the ephod before, you'll see that the breastplate of righteousness is also made of the same materials as the parochet, that is the veil, in other words, the, the red, the blue, the purple, etc. And upon the breastplate are 12 stones, 
representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, if you read the description of these twelve stones, you will see that all twelve would be considered precious stones. And if you understand how how stones are formed in the first place, that is through intense pressure and heat, perhaps, perhaps, these precious stones are precious because they're rare and because they have been subjected to even more pressure and intense heat. This is why this is important. These 12 precious stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so how does God regard the 12 tribes of Israel as precious stones? In other words, peculiar people, special treasure. Let's read Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6 again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, the words that are translated for us, special treasure, is one Hebrew word, segula, segula, which is a jewel. It's a precious stone. And this word is tied to the idea of shutting up something. In other words, something that you would shut up in a safe place because of its value. Something you would guard and protect, as in the congregation of Philadelphia, who he says, I'm going to keep you because of your obedience to me. And that obedience to the Creator, according to Exodus 19, is what identifies those as his people. So, when he says you're a special treasure, he's saying that you are his treasure, his precious jewels, his precious stones. Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. The word is segula. Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Notice a book of remembrance. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. Again, the word is segula. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so, in other words, according to Malachi, he has compassion on them and he protects them because they are his jewels. When Peter refers to believers as being peculiar people, the Greek term is equivalent to the Hebrew segula. In other words, Peter's talking about the fact that we are a peculiar people. He's saying that we are jewels. We are precious stones. And because we are precious stones, we should illuminate because we are called into his light. The way he puts it is that that we should show forth the praises of him who called called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. But we are these precious stones and therefore called out of darkness into light. We should reflect that light. And that's very interesting considering the Urim and Thummim are an integral part of the breastplate. Now you see the breastplate was square, but then it was folded end to end to make a pouch. One tradition says that the Urim and Thummim was concealed within the breastplate. It was hidden within the breastplate. Remember 
Earlier, we talked about this hidden aspect of Israel, hinted at by the Shulam stones that the high priest wore on each shoulder. Nevertheless, what was the Urim and Thummim? It literally means lights, Urim, Thummim, perfections, light and perfections. And it's in, in accordance with the Hebrew idiom of perfect light. That's really what the Urim and Thummim is really saying, perfect light. One tradition says that there was a parchment that would bear God's most sacred name, and it was placed in this pouch formed by folding the breastplate. And then when Israel needed some answers to things, that the high priest would go into the holy place and he would take out that parchment, which they, this one tradition says is the Urim and Thummim, and he would pronounce the name of God, invoke his question, and this would cause the individual stones on the breastplate, one of those 12 stones, to light up. Now, opposing this tradition is based on what we read in Exodus chapter 39, which describes the breastplate in greater detail, is the idea that because it does not mention the Urim and Thummim, and because there is no mention of any artisans fashioning the Urim and Thummim, it is suggested that the Urim and Thummim was a term whereby the twelve stones were denoted. In other words, the twelve stones on the breastplate are synonymous with the Urim and Thummim. In other words, the breastplate of judgment was the medium of communications and not some other item in addition to it. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 8, the Urim and Thummim alone are mentioned and the twelve stones are not. And some suggest that this is very strong proof that they are one and the same. In other words, the Urim and Thummim is a name given to the collective 12 stones. And of course, those 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's jewels, God's precious stones. Now, considering this, and, and frankly, I tend to go along with this train of thought. But at any rate, considering this, and the fact that this was how Israel got answers in times of crisis, that is the Urim Thummim, it is important if the 12 stones collectively are the Urim Thummim, it is important that all 12 stones be there and to be where they were supposed to be. What would have happened if the 12 stones collectively are the Urim Thummim and this is how Israel gets its answers in a time of crisis and some of the stones are missing? Now, there is a legend concerning the Urim and Thummim and the interaction between the breastplate, in this case, and the letters that were thought to be inscribed on the different bowls of the menorah. We covered this in the previous Torah portion. If you add it up, according to the text, there were, there were 22 bowls on the different branches of the menorah corresponding to the 22 letters of the Hebrew Aleph Bet. And so it is believed that one interpretation, anyway, of how the Urim and Thummim would work is that the high priest, needing an answer from God, would wear the breastplate and would stand before the menorah. Because Urim, lights, there's only one thing in the holy place or the tabernacle at large that, that we know of, anyway, that provided light, and that was the menorah. But at any rate, legend has it that the high priest, wearing the breastplate with the twelve stones, would go and he would stand before the menorah. And of course the light would be burning and that light was provided by the pure oil. And as he would inquire of the Lord facing the menorah, 
the lights of the menorah would reflect off the face of those 12 stones or those jewels. It's similar to the way sunlight reflects off the face of the moon. When we go out in the darkness and we look up in the sky and we see the light, really we're not seeing moonlight, we're seeing sunlight, but it's being reflected off the face of the moon. By the way, the moon represents Israel. And so the moon, Israel, is to face the sun, which is the greater light, and to reflect his light. And as we reflect the light, we can be a light in the midst of darkness. We can be a light to the nations. So, likewise, these twelve stones on the breastplate of the high priest, as he faced the menorah, the lights of the menorah would reflect off the face of these different uh, stones, and then that reflection, that illumination, would cause different letters on the menorah to be illuminated, and actually, according to the legend, spell out the answer that Israel needed for the time. And so I find that fascinating for many reasons. But here's what I wanted to point out. If those 12 stones collectively are the Orimitumim, if you don't have all 12 stones where they're supposed to be, if some are missing, if some are scattered, if some have become lost, and you're dependent on those 12 stones being in the right place in order to get an answer from the Creator, if you go in with just three or just six or what have you, Chances are you're going to get an incomplete answer. You may even make a faulty conclusion about the answer because some of the stones are missing. So, in other words, all the tribes have to be in the proper place before Israel can understand things clearly. And because the Creator does nothing except He first reveals His secret into His servants, the prophets, God wants us to know and understand things that infers and heavily suggests that the twelve tribes, this restoration of all things, has got to occur. This is something that is always before the Creator. Those twelve tribes have to be in the right place and they have to be where they're supposed to be. I believe, of course, this alludes to Romans chapter 11, where Paul talks about the fact that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And that term in Hebrew, fullness of the Gentiles, would be Melohagoyim, which connects us to the prophecy that was pronounced upon Joseph's son Ephraim. In you will be a multitude of nations. In other words, there is this concept that goes from the very beginning of Scripture all the way to the end of how God has always been focused upon restoring the kingdom of Israel, restoring the tribes of Israel, bringing the two brothers back together, restoring all things, two flocks under one shepherd, etc. That is always before his heart. And so the Urim and Tumim representing or being synonymous with, I should say, the 12 stones on the breastplate of judgment says very, very strongly that the blindness in part is going to continue until the 12 tribes come back together. Now, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, that's talking about those folks. It's not talking about us. No, ladies and gentlemen, again, according to Galatians 3, verse 29, if you are Messiah, if you are in Messiah, then you are the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. And that means you're part of his family called Israel. We go into a lot of detail on in our teaching that the two may become one. That's what the Orimentumim seems to indicate. 
Now, also couple that with the fact that there is no mention of the Urim and Thummim after the days of David. Here's why. Because not long after David, the kingdom was divided into north and south, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, tradition has it, and I say tradition, that Josiah hid these, that is, the Urim and Thummim, the breastplate, and the ark, knowing that the temple was to be, to be destroyed. But the point was, and is, if the Urim and disappears not long after David, that was not present in the second temple, then for all these things to be put back into place, to be restored, means that David's fallen tabernacle has to be raised up. And when Amos talks about that, let's read in Amos 9.11, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. In other words, I'm going to raise it up. I'm going to repair the tears and the rents in it. I'm going to raise it up, and I'm going to put it back the way it was. That is telling us that the kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes, is going to be restored once again. Instead of a divided kingdom, it's going to be a united kingdom. Instead of two flocks, it's going to be one flock under one shepherd. And that is, again, telling us if the Urim and Thummim is synonymous with the twelve precious stones upon the breastplate of the priest, how can Israel fulfill its mandate to be the light to the nations if Israel continues to be divided? There can be no perfect light if these living stones are not united. And so how are these living stones going to be united? Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. Coming to him, that is Yeshua, as to a living stone rejected indeed by, by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Messiah. And so then, folks, that the Messiah is at the heart of this issue. There can be no doubt. As a matter of fact, the word Choshen, which is translated breastplate, is spelled Chaf Shin Nun. And if you substitute the numerical values for those three letters, the result is 358, which is equivalent to Mem, Shin, Yud, Chet, which spells Mashiach, or Messiah, equivalent in value, 358. In other words, those two terms, numerically speaking, are related terms. That breastplate upon which rests those 12 precious stones is hinting to us of the Messiah, because it, the breastplate, the Choshen, is adorned with 12 stones. What that's telling us then is that the twelve tribes of Israel are on his heart. Because in verse 30 you will see that the breastplate with the twelve stones, that was something Aaron was to bear upon his heart. And so when we speak of our heavenly high priest, what's on his heart? His treasure, his precious stones. In fact, they are hidden in a secure place, and that is the heart of our high priest. Because the restoration of the twelve tribes is what is on the heart of Messiah. In John chapter 11, verses 45 through 52, we understand that Yeshua came to die, not for that nation only, speaking of the Jews, 
Now, he doesn't ignore the Jews. In fact, the gospel went to the Jew first, then the Greek. But he didn't die just for that nation, John tells us. Not for that nation only, but that he would also gather together in one the people of God who were scattered abroad. Those scattered stones, if I can put it that way. When Elijah in 1 Kings goes to Mount Carmel after the prophets of Baal have unsuccessfully called on Baal to answer them, the first thing that Elijah does in the presence of Israel there is to repair or restore the altar of God that had been broken down. And if broken down, that would suggest that the stones of that altar had fallen and had been scattered about. And so the ministry of Elijah was to do what? To gather up the scattered stones and put them back in their proper place. In Matthew 17, Yeshua tells us that the ministry of Elijah is to restore all things. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19, Paul goes to great lengths to make clear to us that Yeshua's death, his burial, and subsequent resurrection was all about this, that the two might be one. So what we're saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that the restoration of the twelve tribes of Israel, because that's so important, that there be a light to the nations, and if the light is represented by the twelve stones reflecting the light of the sun, the greater light, the menorah in this case, how can that light be prevalent if those stones are still scattered all over the place? So those stones have to be regathered. They have to be put back in their proper place. This is what's on the heart of our heavenly high priest, the Messiah. Now, one other point I wanted to make about the breastplate, and that is this, or question, I should say. Being that it is the breastplate of judgment, it prompts this question. Does Yeshua wear this when he judges the nations that are assembled before him in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32? Now, in Exodus chapter 28, verses 31 through 35, the Torah portion describes to us the robe. In verse 33, it talks about the golden bells and the pomegranates that were on the hem of the robe. A, a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate. Tradition teaches us that there were 72 bells and pomegranates on the hem of this robe. And it's understood, traditionally speaking, that the bells were to announce the high priest's entrance into the holy place and, of course, the most holy place on Yom Kippur. Here's something that struck my attention, or got my attention. The pomegranates are blue, purple, and scarlet. Once again, reminding us of Yeshua, the Word, the heavenly, the blue, was made flesh, that is the earth, the red, resulting in the purple. The word made flesh. And so the fruit, which is the pomegranate of the high priest, is symbolic of the seed that produced it, Yeshua being the seed. I just thought that was kind of interesting. In verses 36 through 43, it describes to us the mitre, the turban, the headplate, and some of the other garments. Now the headplate, of course, was golden, and it was engraved with the words, Kadosh Ladonai, or Holy unto Yodhe Holy unto the Lord. And this is interesting because though the high priest holds no political or military power, or it, it was not intended that he hold political or military power, nevertheless he wears a crown. That's interesting because in relation to the kings of Israel, as far as I can make out, there are no crowns ever mentioned. In fact, what distinguishes the kings of Israel is that they had to write their own Torah scroll and carry it around. Now, what this says to me is that Yeshua, the heavenly high priest, is indeed worthy to wear a crown. But his kings and priests derive their values and honor from him. And we could add to that 
by devouring his word and living according to it. Now, the high priest was to wear it at all times, it says. And this creates kind of a question in a lot of people's minds. Was he going to wear it night and day? Anyway, it is understood to mean that when he was in the sanctuary, he was going to wear it, of course, and he would know that it's there. And thus, knowing it was there, he would carry out his duties very effectively. In fact, there's one tradition that says that he would at times put his hand on that head plate, that golden head plate, to remind himself that he was in the sanctuary, what his role was, who he was, what he was supposed to do, and to conduct himself accordingly. Now, when he wasn't in the sanctuary, he was still to, quote-unquote, wear it, but not literally, physically, but to wear that position in daily life, not to forget who he was just because he wasn't wearing the those glorious garments and the head plate of gold, but he was still to wear it. He was still to maintain out there amongst the people who he was and what he was. Not, he, not that he was better than anybody, but that he was the representative of the people to the Creator and a representative of the Creator to the people. And so to conduct himself as holy unto the Lord, which reminds us that as his people, we are to always conduct ourselves as holy unto the Lord. And I think James addresses this for us in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Now, it's also interesting that this golden headplate was worn upon his forehead, which alludes to the mind. In other words, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. Of course, the, in the matter of the priest, what was on his heart was the breastplate. But what was on his forehead or his mind, the constant reminder to be holy unto the Lord. We are to serve the Lord with our heart, our soul, and our strength. So, I'm suggesting to you that matters of the heart sometimes are so deeply ingrained within us that even to us at times they can be concealed. Because in in fact, in my own life, I've known that there have been times that God has brought something to my attention that had always been there, but I never really noticed it because it was so deeply entrenched in my heart. However, what's in our minds What's in our consciousness is easily discerned. What I mean by this is most of my battles occur not necessarily in my heart, but most of my battles occur in my mind. And so those things of the mind eventually manifest themselves in physical ways. If I continue to ponder something, to think on something that is unholy, then eventually it's going to manifest itself in a literal physical manner. And so we should always remind ourselves of who we are, that we can stand holy before him, to not just be a hearer, but to be a doer of the law, so that we won't be like the guy who looks at himself in a mirror, goes away, and forgets who he is. We need to constantly remind ourselves of who we are. The reason we are instructed in part to wear tzitzit is to remind us of who we are. To remind us of the covenant that we are in. 
And so we must continually remind ourselves of who we are to conduct ourselves accordingly so that we can stand blameless before him. Now in verse 38, we also see that the high priest bears the iniquity of all Israel. I find that very striking considering we know that Yeshua has borne all of our iniquity. We see that he wears the plate, that he wears the plate, sanctifies the gifts that Israel brings. Now, it's understood that should there be any imperfection, the high priest is the one who assumes the responsibility. And if you consider Yeshua as the high priest, what has he done? He has borne all of our iniquities. He assumed the responsibility, that is, the penalty for our sins. And in the high priest, we see can secure acceptance of offerings brought to the altar. In other words, in Yeshua, we see he as being our advocate. He is our advocate. And so, being our high priest, he can secure acceptance of the offerings that we bring to the altar, so to speak. Now, in verse 41, we see that the priesthood was inaugurated once and for all time. In other words, the anointment of ordinary priests did not have to be repeated. And their children, from that point forward, would automatically be priests by birth, as we mentioned earlier. In the future, after the dedication of the priesthood, only a newly appointed high priest would be anointed, but that was because he would wear the garments that he inherited from Aaron and on down the line. In other words, in verse 43, it tells us that this priesthood was an eternal statute. And that's interesting, too. Now, in, in Exodus 29, beginning at verse 1, we see the consecration of the priesthood. Of course, we can get a lot of details on this from Leviticus 8. But one of the things that we want to point out about the consecration here as we begin this part of it is that, again, according to tradition, that Aaron and his sons assumed their duties on the first of Aviv. And the reason I find that interesting, and I believe you would too, is that, of course, we know from Exodus 12 that Aviv, the first of the month of Aviv, is to be the beginning of months for Israel. And so traditionally, once again, Aaron and his sons assumed their duties on the first day of Aviv. In verse 2 of chapter 29, we see that the priests were consecrated in part by partaking of unleavened bread course, we understand that that alludes to the matzah eaten at Passover, and how are we consecrated? How are we set apart as his kings and priests, as people who, are, who have been born again and become part of his body? Well, because we take of that unleavened bread, which represents his body, and we take of the cup, which represents the blood that he poured out for us, and that atonement that was wrought for us, we are able to partake of it. When we partake of him. In verse 4, we see that the priests had to be ceremonially washed before they could draw near, karav, unto the Creator. And this reminds us of what the psalmist said. Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And what I found so striking about that is that, of course, those who are ascending the hill of the Lord, that's alluding to the Temple Mount, the Temple standing there, those who are going to stand in his holy place, who is he going to allow to do that? 
Well, those who have been cleaned, those who have been washed, just like Aaron and his sons had to be ceremonially washed. But the one who has a pure heart. And the word that is translated pure here is bar, bet resh, bar, which also happens to mean son. And so what is it really getting at? Who is going to ascend the hill of the Lord? Who is going to be able to stand in his holy place? Who are going to be his priests, in other words? The one whose hands have been cleansed of all filthiness. That indicates the relationship that comes through Yeshua the Messiah. And the one who has a pure heart, bar, which is also to say son, the one who has the heart of a son. Because we understand that to as many as received him, that is Yeshua the Messiah, to them he gave the right, the power, the ability to become sons of God. Romans 8 teaches us that those who are led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And so, if I may, the priesthood here is really indicating who are going to be his sons. Who are his sons? Who are going to min- who's going to minister to him as a son? Who has a pure heart? Now in verse 9, we see that this was to be an eternal duty. Aaron's family are to be koinim from the birth. And then in verse 20, we see that the blood is applied to the right ear, the right thumb, and the right big toe. And I want to read you a portion of, or an excerpt from something Rabbi Hirsch wrote in relation to this. He says, quote, Through the ear, one hears and understands. Through the hand, one acts. Through the feet, one moves about. All three are consecrated to show that the Kohen dedicates all his faculties to God's service. In other words, this is what I glean from that. The priests were to be those who not only heard, but did, to hear and to do. And that is an admonition to you and I, to be not just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. Again, indicating that we too are called to be priests. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and we are to live lives accordingly. Now here's something that was just really fascinating to me, and that is that in verse 21, God has gone to great lengths to describe the details of these immaculate, beautiful garments of glory and splendor. But then in verse 21, those beautiful, immaculate garments are sprinkled with blood. Why? So that they will be holy. And that's striking because they're only considered to be holy garments because they're sprinkled with blood. And for me, this connects back to the idea that garments, big day related to the word bagad, bagad meaning faithlessness, again, connecting to the idea that garments are related to faithlessness, that blood had to be shed to cover Adam's nakedness. And then here we see that blood sanctifies the garments of the high priest that he may stand before the Lord. And so nowhere do we see that these garments are ever sprinkled with blood again which would indicate to me that the blood that was first sprinkled remained. And so every high priest from that point forward would inherit these garments that presumably are still splattered with blood. So as we relate this to us, number one, we can only stand before the Father because of the blood of Yeshua. Furthermore, we understand that Yeshua entered into the holy place with his own blood, 
and that this blood was applied once and for all, for all time, because Yeshua entered once into the holy place. Now, part of the consecration ritual included a meal comprised of things that attained atonement. In other words, part of it was the unleavened bread that we mentioned earlier. You know, it was a certain portion from the from the ram, etc. But here's what I want you to see. This consecration ritual that is setting apart and initiating the priesthood includes a meal that is comprised of things that had attained atonement. And these priests, Aaron and his sons, could not eat it unworthily. They couldn't eat it until they had satisfied a certain protocol. They couldn't eat it unworthily. Not only that... But no stranger or alien was allowed to partake of it because it was holy. And of course, this reminds us of the admonitions that we have when it comes to Passover, to not eat it or not partake of it unworthily, because this represents the body of the Messiah, represents the blood of the Messiah, and what he did to accomplish redemption for us, to attain atonement for us. And of course, we are not to... We're not supposed to allow people who are unbelievers. Unbelievers should not partake of this because it is sacred. It is set apart. And so the meal that represents our atonement, of course, everybody's heard how atonement is broken up into at-one-ment. This is the meal that represents our atonement and our relationship with the Creator through our heavenly high priest. Now, in verse 37, we see that whatever touched the altar was supposed to be holy, or some would argue that means whatever touched the altar became sanctified and was considered to be holy. And that just goes back to the the idea when Yeshua was talking to a group of people who felt that the gold of the temple was more precious than the temple itself, or that the sacrifice placed on the altar was more precious than the altar itself. And he he mentioned to them that it's the temple that sanctifies the gold. And it's the altar that sanctifies the gift. Because ultimately, and this is what we get to here in the Torah portion in verses 44 and 5, it's the one who inhabits or who dwells in the temple that sanctifies it all. And so in verses 44 and 45 of chapter 29, God tells us that he is the one who sanctifies the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and everything in it. Because this is where he's going to meet with his people. And when he meets with his people, they will know that he is the Lord. He will dwell within them. In fact, this is why we were taken out of Egypt, that he might dwell within us. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that statement right there summarizes the purpose of the Mishkan. And so now that we've discussed all the things whereby the Mishkan can function, it now takes us to Exodus chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, And describes for us the altar of incense. And so the question might be with some. Why is it that the altar of incense is mentioned just now? How come it it wasn't mentioned when the menorah and the table of Shubred and the Ark of the Covenant and these things weren't discussed? It is understood that the golden altar or the altar of incense, the purpose of it was much different than any of the other furnishings. You see, God's presence was to dwell within the Mishkan, which represents the people, him dwelling in their midst. And his holiness and their carnality presented a danger for them. In other words, because he's holy, he's not going to suffer a lot of carnality being 
in his presence. And so this presented a danger for the people of Israel. And so by means of the golden altar and burning incense, it provided a means to shelter them from this potential danger. In other words, it's similar to the thick, dark cloud that we see on Mount Sinai. Because when God came down on top of the mountain in the thick, dark cloud, that wasn't necessarily for his benefit. That was for Israel's benefit. In fact, he tells them, don't come near the mountain, because if you do, you're going to die. So he warns them, and it goes back to the fact that he's holy, and they were not. They're people. They're, they're carnal. And so, likewise, the burning of the incense and the smoke that's created by the incense burning was to offer somewhat of a, a shield, a shelter, an insulation that would guard and help and protect the people. Because no sacrifices that concerned blood were offered on the altar of incense, only the incense was burned. And of course, this occurred in the morning when the priests cleaned the lamps and when they arranged the wicks of the menorah. And then it was once again used in the evening when the lamps were kindled. And thus the smoke and the fragrance of incense provided a shield, if a, a protection, if I can put it that way. Now, the reason I find this so interesting is because that the psalmist reveals something very important to us in Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. You see, many times our prayers and our petitions shield us from danger. When we pray, many times our prayers are, we're in trouble, we want to avoid trouble, a need, what have you. But what I'm getting at is this, our constant prayer, our fervent, effectual prayer if it's coming from a righteous man, it can avail much. Because many times what we have when we have prayer is evidence of a contrite heart. The lifting of hands as in the evening sacrifice, well, that's when incense was being burned. And so what we want to suggest is that our prayers, and I'm not talking about the gimme, gimme, gimme kind of prayers. I'm talking about the sincere, heartfelt prayers whatever the issue may be, is coming from, hopefully, a contrite heart. And that is likened unto the incense that was upon the golden altar that filled the house, that acted as an insulation, as something that protected the people from the potential danger that was there in being carnal in the midst of a holy God. Now, there's something else that goes along with this, and that is lifting of hands Prayer is also somewhat synonymous with praises. You see, God inhabits the praises of his people Israel, according to the psalmist. And the word inhabits literally is yoshev, and it means to sit. So he sits on the praises of his people Israel, which is to say he is enthroned upon the praises of his people Israel. And we won't go into all the details of this, but there is an understanding in Judaism anyway that God's throne is also his war chariot called the Merkava. In fact, this is where the Israelis get the whole Merkava tank. But at any rate, it's believed that God's throne is also his chariot that he takes to war. In the book of Revelation, you, you will see that there are many voices issuing from the throne of God. And if God is enthroned upon the praises of Israel, might it be that what John hears is the many voices of those people praising 
and we would have to say that that's somewhat synonymous with prayer emanating from the throne of God. And so here's what I'm getting at. Prayer in conjunction with praise is what at times provokes God to go to war on our behalf and thus protects us and shields us from danger. Jehoshaphat, when he was being invaded by the three bands of people, he goes to battle, but he puts the praisers out in front, and when they get to the battlefield, they find that all of their enemies are already dead because the praises provoked God to go and to do battle for them. All they had to do was to show up and to split up the loot. And so, ladies and gentlemen, as we come to the end of this Torah portion, what we see is that prayer and praise is a daily requirement in service to God, and it's for our benefit as well. And so this Torah portion, again, has focused on the priesthood and what all that encompasses, that the priesthood should always walk holy before God to remember who they are, to follow the protocol as you approach the creator of the universe. And it also reminds us of the fact that ultimately we have a heavenly high priest who bears upon his shoulders the tribes of Israel, that the closest thing to his heart are his precious jewels, the tribes of Israel. In fact, so precious that the word became flesh and dwelt among us that he might do this, that he might die, not for that nation only, but that he would also gather together in one the people of God, these living stones scattered abroad, so that he might put them all in their right and proper place so that Israel truly could be a light to the nations. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.